Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the push for vaccinations continues as cases of COVID variants rise in Canada. As we're seeing more information coming forward about the third variant, as we see the numbers rising and the really potential, the serious potential of the third of this variant or the variants in general of spreading like wildfire to create a, a massive third wave. More than ever, the vaccines are one of the key ways for us to solve this problem. Calls for Justin Trudeau to speak more strongly about accusations of genocide in China. It's a word that is extremely loaded and uh, is certainly something uh, that we should be looking at. Uh, in the case of the Uyghurs. And I know the international community is looking very carefully at that, and we are certainly among them. And caution against pre-election spending in the coming budget. In the typical bureaucratic language of the IMF, they they said prior to embarking on any new spending, the government should ensure that it has well-defined objectives, including enhancing long-term growth. It's Thursday, February the 18th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. We're joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us. Morning, Mark. Let's talk about where we stand in terms of vaccinations, uh, the arrival of uh, and <clears throat> proliferation to some extent of new variants of COVID-19 in Canada, and even the fact that in some places there are public health officials saying that we should not be reopening parts of the economy um, because there is the risk of a third wave, a very significant risk. Um, it feels increasingly like this long slog through winter is is not over yet and that there are still many milestones ahead before this crisis is over, both practically and politically. Right. And I think you, you hit the nail there by saying practically. I mean, this is not a political debate or an academic debate or a partisan debate, there are practical implications of this uh, vaccine uh, supply problem. You know, Canada's now slipped to 46th on the table. It's, you know, vaccine is coming, but it's not here yet. And there are people who are desperately waiting for vaccines as they look to see this these new extremely contagious variants starting to spread out. And, the, you know, the public health official in Toronto and Peel region yesterday saying, you know, we should not be uh, relaxing our public health restrictions as as, as much as the, uh, the the province seems to want to. Quebec, the same thing. I mean, they're going to open movie theatres and swimming pools and all sorts of things. And yet this wave, seemingly inexorable wave, is coming towards us and the vaccine supply is still not... Uh, flowing as, as as much as the government would like it to. Now, Anita Anand, the procurement minister yesterday, said just keep calm and carry on. Significant increases in vaccine deliveries are coming. And she, we, we saw the, the, for the first time a schedule for the Pfizer deliveries. And it does look like if they live up to their uh, commitments, that Pfizer will deliver somewhere around 1.8 million doses in March. And Moderna is on course to to deliver 1.3 million shots in March, which if they all come in and the provinces are able to actually get those into people's arms, will mean that the government has lived up to its its commitment of, uh, I think, 6 million in total by the end of March. You know, that should significantly change the complexion of the problem and uh, and get the government out of a real jam. But, you know, that's... 
you know, many a slip betwixt cup and lip, as the as the bard once said. Yeah. All right, let's turn to the, the relationship between Canada and China, uh, the Prime Minister's reluctance to denounce uh, what other people describe as a genocide of the Uyghurs in China, um, and, uh, and this ongoing discussion more broadly about how the government is handling its relationship with China. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts are that this government has got a continuing blind spot on China, which has existed since they came into power. Uh, they were somewhat uh, disabused of the notion of uh, closer links with China after the, the attempt to strike a free trade deal f- failed dismally. And then, of course, the, the, the detention of the two Michaels. And yet we still hear comments from, from government ministers about how you know China is a potentially constructive partner. I interviewed Mark Garneau just this week and, and asked him about what he intends to do now he's foreign affairs minister. He said he's going to fine-tune the relationship. He still hopes to have a, have a constructive relationship with China. You know, Justin Trudeau this week refused to call what is, is happening in Xinjiang province a genocide, even though he had said there's an ongoing genocide in Canada when it comes to Indigenous Canadians. You know, I think what is happening in Xinjiang, a forced sterilization and re-education program of uh, Uyghurs, fits the bill of, of a genocide. I mean, they're they're attempting to eliminate an ethnic group, not by killing them, but by, by sterilizing them. Uh, yet, the deeply embedded China lobby, which is all around this government, seems to still have the whip hand when it comes to what what uh, how, the, how Canada treats China. And I think it starts at the top with with the Prime Minister, who said he at once said he deeply admires China. Uh, he visited China with his father uh, as a boy, and I think that that abiding fondness for for the way China does things still abides and, and uh, you know, they just cannot seem to get past the fact that this is, today's China is not the China that he knew when he went there. What do you think that means in the in the context of the efforts to uh, to secure the release of the two Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who are detained there? Is that impacting those conversations? Well, I think that the government is in a difficult spot on that one. I mean, it's not a need. There's no magic wand to wave to get, to get uh, the Michaels out. I mean, this week, the government of uh, Canada pioneered an effort to, um, to try to end arbitrary detention going forward. 58 countries signed up to this declaration, which said that they will speak as, with one voice if citizens of any one nation are arbitrarily detained. I don't think, though, that that particularly helps the two Michaels. I think the government is probably uh, trying to convince the Biden administration to to drop charges against uh, Madame uh, Meng Wenzhou. Uh, if that happened, then, then that might free the Michaels. <clears throat> but I think I'm talking about a br- the broader bilateral relationship with China, where, where the, the government still seems to be naive in its approach when it comes to Hong Kong, when it comes to uh, trade. I mean, there's the, the, our ambassador in Beijing is still talking about deeper links with China. At the same time, the, the China is refusing to deal with with many Canadian companies. At the same time as China, uh, on the vaccine front, refused to allow this uh, this deal with CanSino, where where Canada was pre- pretty much relying on a deal with China for its domestic vaccine manufacture. So I think there's still 
blinders on and uh, quite why that is, it's, it's hard to say, but I think it emanates from the top. All right, let's talk about a subject you've written about very recently, um, uh, the prospect of uh, tens of billions of dollars of pre-election spending in the upcoming federal budget. Uh, There have been warnings against this from a couple of different places, but um, this uh, this is the subject of some debate now about whether Canada can afford especially after all the money that's been expended on COVID relief efforts, uh, whether Canada can afford some of the things the government is considering doing moving forward. What's the latest on that? Well, this is in the run-up to the, to the federal budget. Now, we haven't had a federal budget for two years, so this is uh, this is a big one. And uh, Christian Freeland, the, the finance minister, has called it the most significant budget in her lifetime. So, you know, it is a big deal. We've spent a lot of money on uh, on COVID relief. I mean, $250 billion dollars directly to businesses and individuals. Uh, I don't think anybody in particular is quibbling with that. But a group of IMF economists were in uh, in Ottawa earlier this year. They, they regularly provide these critical assessments of how countries are, are doing. They call them Article 4 reports after the, the, the body of articles of agreement that the IMF has. Uh, they re- forecast pretty robust growth for Canada this year, 4.4% after last year's 5.4% contraction. And they, in fact, congratulated Canada on uh, a a timely, decisive and well-coordinated reaction to the pandemic. But they did qualify that by saying, you know, the government plans to spend up to 4% of GDP, which is $100 billion over the next three years, to support the recovery. And, you know, in the typical bureaucratic language of the IMF, they they said prior to embarking on any new spending, the government should ensure that it has well-defined objectives including enhancing long-term growth. You know, that is not particularly what I see. I don't think that many of the, the spending commitments the government has made, first of all, they're not particularly growth-enhancing. Secondly, they're, they're likely to be permanent spending programs, not not temporary measures to boost, uh, to, to support the recovery. I mean, here we're talking of things like uh, a national childcare program, uh, things like hiking disability benefits, hiking old-age security benefits for the over 75s, the National Pharmacare Programme. These, these are all commitments the government has made. None of them are temporary, and many of them would seem to be pre-election spending splurges that will help the government get re-elected. Now, the, the, uh, the C.D. Howe Institute came out yesterday, and these are not partisan people, but a group of uh, a working group that includes John Manley, the former Liberal Finance Minister, and ex-Saskatchewan NDP Finance Minister Janice McKinnon, Liberal advisor Robert Asselin and, and, and other senior former finance officials, and they said spend only if necessary. They think that um, debt finance stimulus should be temporary, essential, and targeted to improving the economy's productive capacity. Hmm. So I think that, that that is the challenge for the government going forward, is that, that if they come out and spend $100 billion over three years to get re-elected, they will be doing the country a massive disservice, and, you know, we will be paying for that for many, many years to come. It might get them re-elected, but but I don't think it's in the national interest. All right, great to have your comments on all of this today, John. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. It's a word that is extremely loaded and uh, is certainly something uh, that we should be looking at. Uh, in the case of the Uyghurs. And I know the international community is looking very carefully at that, and we are certainly among them.
Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today in the Globe and Mail. Robin Urbach asks why Justin Trudeau won't say China committed genocide. Urbach writes, Trudeau offered certainty as to what he considers to be genocide when he accepted the conclusions of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls report. Yet, when asked about the evidence his government would need to consider the persecution of China's Uyghur Muslim minority genocide, he dithered. The evidence out of China chronicles how members of the Uyghurs are living under many of the same conditions outlined in the MMIWG report, which this Prime Minister and government agreed amounted to genocide. In the Ottawa Citizen, Terry Glavin argues a wave of public disgust threatens to overwhelm the federal government's practice of accommodating Beijing. Glavin writes, The last straw will be remembered as Justin Trudeau's equivocations about the oppression of the Muslim peoples of Xinjiang. The government responds by putting on a show of action, always in Canada's national interest, in line with Canada's values, and so on. Before anybody notices it's all been smoke and mirrors, it's on to the next exercise in message management. But kicking all this down the road, in the hope that Canadians won't notice, won't work anymore. At ctvnews.ca, Don Martin considers the chances of a spring election. Martin writes, This week's gun control announcements will be welcomed in cities the Liberals need to hold. The coalition of countries attacking political hostage takers was an overdue blast of diplomacy. And then there's the budget, which offers a tempting starting line for any spring campaign. A quick vaccination blitz would almost guarantee that voters roll out the red carpet to another Liberal government. There's a mega shipment on the way that could inoculate Trudeau from defeat in a spring election. Now here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Transport Minister will be appearing before a Commons Committee later today. And as CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, the issue will be the future of Canada's beleaguered airline industry. Mark, Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra will appear before the Transport Committee between 3.30 and 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The committee is specifically looking into the impact of the pandemic on the airline sector. Canada's largest air carrier, Air Canada, is operating at only about 10% capacity. It lost $4.5 billion last year and it has laid off thousands of employees. WestJet and the other smaller carriers are in a similar predicament. So Minister Algabra will no doubt be grilled about the state of negotiations of a long-awaited multi-billion dollar rescue package for the airlines. Reports have been leaking out lately that the finance department negotiators and representatives for the airlines are slowly coming to an agreement. One of the biggest sticking points, however, has been several of the airlines' unwillingness to issue Canadian passengers refunds for cancelled flights. Air Canada so far has been the least cooperative. WestJet has begun giving refunds to all those Canadians affected by cancelled flights. The government is also said to be holding out to make sure that any bailout won't go to executive bonuses and shareholder payouts, as happened in the auto bailout of years gone by. So Mark, it'll be interesting to hear what, if anything, the Transport Minister has to say on that subject to the committee. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will chair the Cabinet meeting. He'll then be joined by Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau to meet virtually with companies in Pine Lake, Alberta, and saint Clotilde de Châteauguay, Quebec. He will also host a call with provincial and territorial premiers. Justice Minister David Lametti, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair, Diversity Minister Bartish Chagger, and the Minister of Families Ahmed Hussein will hold a news conference in Ottawa 
Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole will speak at an event hosted by the Greater Niagara Chamber of Commerce. Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet will hold a news conference in Ottawa. Heritage Minister Stephen Guilbeault will make a virtual announcement about cultural infrastructure funding in Toronto. And Minister for Women Mariam Monsef will announce a federal investment to improve high-speed internet access in British Columbia. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, February the 18th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.